Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Podcast. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. My mama said I can't see you no more Cause we don't know what love really means She says we can't get married for three years or more Cause we're only listening to Living the Dream and tonight we have a special episode. We're joined by Simon Copeland and um, we're talking about the non-binding, it's not a plebiscite is it? What is it? A postal survey. Non-binding postal survey on same-sex marriage and you're joined as always by John Puccini. What's going on John? How you doing? Oh yeah, not much. Looking forward to having a good chat about non-binding, non-compulsory service. And John, if people want to contact you on Twitter, what do they do? At John Puccini. And I'm at Dave. At the name, the creative. And I'm Dave, and I'm at with so- Sober Senses. And Simon, we're really stoked to have you here tonight. Do you want to give a bit of an introduction, introduction to the listeners about just who you are and your claim to fame? Oh, thank you for having me. It's really nice to be here as well. Uh, so my name is Simon Copland. Um, I'm a 
PhD student in sociology at the ANU um, and also a freelance writer uh, mostly on gender and sexuality issues but like a whole range of other things when I feel like it. Um, and I mean, to, to, to team with the theme of what people have been doing, I, you can find me on Twitter at Simon Copland and on Facebook at Simon Copland Writer. Uh, and you can see all of my ha- happenings there. Fantastic. And look, uh, we have, I have to tell people who are listening, this is our second attempt to record the show. We recorded in the cafe for the old school uh, feel on Saturday and Anna, um, doyan of the Brisbane radical left and all round good egg, lent us her Zoom and we had quite a lot of confidence in what that technology was going to provide to us, but the sound quality that we were left with was subpar even by our standards. So we're going to record again. So hopefully that means that the previous attempt just um, has honed it's a dry, it's a dry run. Yes, yeah, a dry run. Yeah, I mean, not... this is just another opportunity for us to catch up and have awesome chats. That's right. And, and I got to discover that Simon was an honorary Brisbaneite. He was a yeah. chill bloke and really, you know, keeping with the vibe okay. of the place. That's excellent. Um, and I'm quite, you know, they're, they're one of the biggest compliments of my life. <laughs> <laughs> and to, to counter that, co- that compliment, did I just like say your name incorrectly at the beginning of the show? You did. I was oh, just, I was, just uh, I was moving past it. Uh, it happens uh, quite frequently. I'll fixate on it. One of the reasons we, we wanted to get Simon on was not just because Simon's fantastic, but also that Simon's been very prominent lately as one of the few optimistic voices about the possibilities of this non-binding postal survey. But for those of you that are our international listeners or um, basically maybe have not been paying attention, what is this survey and how did we get here? Um, well, it's been a, a multi-year process, I guess. I mean, for those who, who, you know, who don't know any of the history of this issue of same-sex marriage in Australia, uh, in 2004, our Prime Minister, John Howard, um, at the time, who was, member of the, who was the leader of the Liberal Party, um, moved legislation to actively ban same-sex marriage, to, to actively define the Marriage Act to be between a man and a woman, um, fearing court challenges that at that point of time that would have allowed um, same-sex couples to wed. And really since then there's been a, a sort of growing campaign to uh, change that, I guess, to change that back um, so that uh, same-sex marriage would be legal. And what, and what we saw was the slow progression of that uh, that sort of has culminated in the last few years and you saw uh, the Labor Party in particular eventually sort of get on board and they now have what's called a conscience vote on the issue, um, which means that uh, their, their members are allowed to vote um, how according to their conscience on the issue. Um, and the Labor Party now has... Um, like a vast majority of their members who uh, who are willing to do, who, who um, say they support same-sex marriage. We have the Greens who have been pushing this very heavily and they all clearly support same-sex marriage. And so it's come down to this Liberal government that we have at the moment. And due to a whole range of forces uh, within the party, uh, there's been pushes, a strong push for the Liberal Party to adopt a conscience vote as well um, and to uh, so that their members could vote by their conscience. And if it's believed that if that was to be the case, then then uh, marriage equality would pass our parliament, kind of similar to what happened in Germany just recently where there was a lot of push for Angela Merkel to, to adopt the same thing and she eventually did. Uh, but as a kind of compromise um, on this issue, the Liberal Party has pro- proposed a plebiscite um, in which everybody would get to vote on same-sex marriage, uh, and orig- originally that was going to be a, a, a 
not a binding, but a um, compulsory vote occurring, just like any sort of election, which people turn up to polling booths on a particular day. Um, but that had to go through the parliament uh, for that to occur. Um, the government attempted twice for it to do so, but that was blocked by our Senate. Um, and as a sort of a, a second compromise, they agreed to a postal vote, a non-compulsory postal vote, uh, which uh, didn't require that parliamentary approval. So we're that, kind of now in the sort of middle of that postal vote and ballot papers have gone out to everybody and they're all due back by sort of early November um, and people have to vote uh, or don't have to, but they get to vote and um, answer the question of whether they think same-sex marriage should be legal. It's a nice summary, I think, of what's happening. Mm. And the postal vote doesn't directly lead to legislation either, does it? No, it doesn't. So it's it's like some people call this a big, big, um, you know, survey or a big uh, uh, poll, I guess. Um, so there is no binding element to this. Uh, the government will then have to um, pass legislation. Um, still, still will have to, you know, implement, you know, put forward and pass legislation. I'm relatively confident that if the postal vote comes back as a yes, um, whilst there will be sort of ructions with the Liberal Party from the most conservative members. Um, the, the, sort of mo the moderates will have the backing to be able to move that legislation forward and to allow a conscious vote, and it would pass quite easily, I believe. Yeah, and it's um, the, I guess there's a couple of things on this to, to start with. I went back and had a look at the some of the media that was around Howard's 2004 decision, um, mm -hmm. and one of the things that was really quite interesting is that in 2004, um, Howard made this explicit comment that he wanted marriage not to be in the hands of the court but in the hands of the parliament which well, that's interesting. which is really that. which is really interesting considering um what's going on at the moment but also the question of children was made really explicitly so that part of this redefinition of the marriage act would make it harder for queer couples to adopt children from overseas and there's a quote from Philip Philip Ruddick that explicitly says, we don't want same-sex couples to adopt children. So... Yeah. And, I mean, that's been part of the arguments against marriage equality. You know, in, in countries all around the world, the, you know, children... And, and we're seeing that very strongly in the campaign now that uh, a lot of it is focused on children. It's focused less on, um, the, uh, you know, the parents of children... Um, you know, the, on gay parents, that's still part of it, but it's it's less um, focused on that now than it would have been maybe five years ago. I think um, many conservatives think they've lost that argument, um, but instead what we're seeing is a real focus on schools and the sort of gender ideology or queer ideology being pushed to um, kids in through our school systems and that same-sex marriage will mean, make all of this compulsory and that soon all boys will be wearing skirts and dresses and that's evil. Which is explain the explicit line that the um, opposition has, the opposition to the yes vote, the no campaign has been making. I think also at the moment it looks pretty convincingly that the the yes vote's going to win sizably, right? That's the the news that was being reported today. Yeah, that's how I read it. So there's been a number of polls out in the last uh, few weeks that suggest that. Not only are more people voting yes, but that yes voters are far more enthusiastic about voting. So yes voters are coming out much stronger than no voters. And so there was, um, there's been a number of polls that have suggested this that are looking at, you know, anywhere between 60 to 75% of people who have voted um, voting yes. Uh, and that of those who haven't voted, 
a, a, a much larger proportion of them would be yes voters. Um, so again, within the 60 to 75 percent range. Um, and so that no voters are actually staying home on this one or some no voters are staying home on this one or undecided voters are also staying home. And it's often undecided voters who, who swing to the status quo. Um, but on an issue like mm. this, I guess they're just deciding to stay home rather than, you know, not just, you know, to stay home metaphorically rather than to, to put their ballot paper in the poster box. Okay. So <laughs> in our conversation the other day, one of the things we started with, and I thought this was pretty interesting, was to actually ask you to give us some big context about this. So this has become very much a debate about the nature of homophobia in Australian society and issues around sexuality. What role does homophobia play in contemporary Australian society? Does it exist? And can we understand that with a relationship to how capitalism functions in, this, in Australian society? I remember you asking me this on Saturday and being like, oh, God, such a big question. And it still feels like a big question. Um, I feel like I've, I've answered it once. Why can't I answer it? You know, why does it still intimidate me? I mean, I think it's pretty clear that homophobia still plays a role in our society. And you can just look at the vote, you know, the, the, at the um, campaign at the moment to see that homophobia still exists in our society um, and that it has very strange and weird and wonderful, uh, not wonderful, but has very strange and weird um, permutations that come mm. out in very bizarre kind of ways. Um, <laughs> I saw today Fred Nile, the local crackpot in New South Wales, um, oh. claiming that homosexuals may, uh, you know, decide soon to start their own nation and that same love would be the uh, national anthem of that nation. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's this strange, weird homophobia that's still out there that's, that's, that's getting more desperate, I believe. Um, so we laugh about Fred Nile, though, but he has actually been in Parliament, New South Wales Parliament, for mm. more like 30 years I know, something, I know. Right? And, he, so, and he's very powerful when it comes to legislation. Yeah, and, that, and that's a good indication of the role that homophobia plays. I mean, I think the very fact that we're having a plebiscite um, shows the role that homophobia still plays in our parliament, uh, in particular in our governments, and in go our governments at a federal level and around the states. Um, you know, the, the, the fact that you know, all of this has happened is because conservatives in the Liberal Party in particular and the Nationals have... Um, not wanted to have a conscience vote on this, to have, and that has been a, a tactic to stop same-sex marriage from passing. So it's you know this was you know there's been lots of arguments that this is all a very a delaying tactic, and that this is um, uh, this is all about stopping same-sex marriage from occurring, which I think is true that that underpins a lot of why people you know the parliament has wanted to do this, mm. uh, and I think that that sort of high-level homophobia still plays out you know at a, at a local level too, and I don't want to deny that that people still, um, you know, queer people in Australia still face, you know, estrangement from family and friends. They still face violence on the streets or violence in their homes. Um, homophobia and queerphobia is still prevalent throughout our society in many different ways. Um, but it is, you know, and we might talk about this later, it is better than it used to be, definitely. Um, I think to go to that second part of your question, which is the sort of bigger question and what role does capitalism play in all of this? To uh, answer that question, maybe it's worth going like back a couple of hundred years and sort of thinking about all, you know, the, the starting points of capitalism. And when capitalism arose, just like previous systems, economic systems, uh, it, it really required um, the existence of a family structure or and in particular in, in capitalism, a nuclear family structure for its survival. And the, the nuclear family... Um, provided a whole range of different um, 
functions for capitalism. It uh, ensured that reproductive labor was done free and at, not at the capitalist expense. Um, it ensured the passage of capital from family members, from family to fa- you know, from parents to children. Um, and uh, it sort of dealt with a whole range of issues in relation to stopping things like promiscuity and all and um, sort of sexual freedom in many kind of ways. And uh, in particular, I think that the element, the role that you know, domestic labour and reproductive labour was really important here. Um, families were kind of required um, to be units to to breed a next generation of workers. Capitalism relies on workers to survive, and so there needs to be more and more workers um, to 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 be born, I guess. Um, and capitalism required um, a, a unit that could could do those services and not could just give birth to kids or have kids, but also to be able to raise them and to turn them into people who are ready to be in the working class. Socialise them in, in particular ways. Exactly, mm. yeah. And and there's, you know, good you know, stuff about the school system as well being about socialising people in, in, in those particular ways, and mm. but also the family plays that particular role. Uh, and what happened when we saw the rise of industrial capitalism in particular was that people were flooding to the cities um, and... People who were often um, in rural towns, in isolated communities, were sort of coming together. And people who we would now call queer or gay or lesbian, um, although they didn't have those terms in those days, um, would uh, started to meet and started to congregate and started mm. to uh, get together. And they started to form um, social circles and they started to form, uh, you know, have bars. And so you see the, the rise of things like in the sort of late 1700s, early 1800s, you have uh the rise of what are called molly bars, uh, which are which were often you know bars that were in people's houses, and they sort of played a, a mixture of roles of um, bars and places where people could meet to have sex. Um, uh, sometimes they had these sort of elaborate marriage sort of ceremonies um, for, for for gay men. Uh, in the sort of 1800s in Victorian England, you saw the uh, rise of a sort of drag t- scene, what we call the drag scene now. Um, or, or similar, you know, men dressing as women and meeting and socialising, and that was quite common. Um, so you saw people getting together and forming these communities. And the ruling classes um, saw that as a major threat because they saw, and this is this is something that is a thread that runs throughout the history of homophobia in capitalism, is they saw that a, a major fear that those sorts of communities could spread and they could get bigger, um, and that they could entice other people into them and that the capitalist family, the nuclear family, would suffer as a result. Um, so queer people were seen as a threat to the system of the nuclear family, and so mm. the ruling classes started to started to crack down, I guess, um, and started to find ways to crack down. And they did so through a whole range of measures. They did so through medicalising um, queer people in the sort of late uh, 1800s and early 1900s. You start to see the terms homosexual and heterosexual appear, and that was a way to define the normal and the abnormal sexuality and that gave space to allow um, homosexuals to be put into institutions and to to be in, um, you know to put into mental asylums or to be castra- uh, cast- castrated castrated <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and uh, you see a whole range of cultural um, things occurring in which sort of um, sort of uh, sort of started to see the isolation of queer people and and you see you know that sort of um, a, a whole range of different things there to uh, it's where you see a lot of the stereotyping of queer people appear, but also the sort of the cultural ideas that queers are backwards and a threat to society, and and that is, and that is led through that is led by a desire from ruling classes to sort of 
to, to rid um, society of queer people who are a threat to the nuclear family. I think that, that kind of analysis is really fascinating because it like it really changes how we normally think about something like homophobia. So I think you know that right now at the moment we ha- like we have a dominant. So the dominant ideology in Australian society would understand homophobia as kind of um, the product of some backward ideas out there that can Mm -hmm. be treated by a combination of legal punishments over speech and education campaigns. While the, the analysis that you're providing actually says, no, well, the question of the family is a crucial question for the reproduction of capitalist society, and it's always been a product of the state, Right, like it's oh. you know, it's not yeah, um, it's, it's not a like the, this is always involved state intervention in the construction of the family and the regulation of the body, yeah. and that this is not some kind of marginal issue, but rather this is actually central to the reproduction of workers in the present and the next generation. So that really kind of changes it and challenges, I think, how we normally think about what um, anti homophobia looks like, but also kind of returns a radical edge. Right, it actually says that these struggles around sexuality um, do actually lead to potentially to a different kind of society and they're not things that just can be normalized equally and we forgot to say this before but this is a very question that Andrew Bolt has attacked you personally about as well isn't it (laughs) it is it is I mean I I agree with your analysis I'll get back to Andrew Bolt in a second Uh, I agree with your analysis entirely in terms of it is a very different way of thinking about things and it's sort of uh, to me the the radical edge of this is that it, uh, it's a direct challenge to sort of a lot of respectability politics that is focused on how can we just be included into the capitalist system. And I, I sort of argue you see people, you know, through marriage in particular, you are seeing queers being included into the system, and that's that's increasingly common. Uh, but the the potentials of different forms of relationship structures and different forms of um, uh, formations of love and sexuality and sex are being lost in that process. And that's not just for queers, but for everybody. Uh, And this is something uh, that I think is sort of undervalued in a lot of these debates is that a lot of stuff about sort of queer liberation is not just about queer people, but it's actually about sort of the liberation of thinking about how we have relationships and how we engage in those relationships, whether you're queer or you're straight or you're uh, bisexual or whatever you want to be, thinking about the potential to be outside of the nuclear family is quite important. Um, I think, I think it's important as well, sorry, just to think about the way that marriage has functioned in Australian society as a way of ascertaining who is suitable as for citizenship, in a way. That marriage is, like, marriage was denied, the, the right to marriage was denied to convicts originally in Australian society, and also denied, of course, to Indigenous people, and the churches have, of course, maintained strict hierarchies on who can marry within faiths, and this was, there was a racial division within this as well, where it was very controversial for anyone to marry across racial lines. That these, this is a the, the terrain of marriage itself in capitalist society, particularly in a racist, sexist, particularly racist, sexist society like Australia, has always been open to debate, and marriage itself is a terrain of struggle, I suppose. Yeah, just to throw that in there. No, I think it's really interesting. And also, John, as well, because you're, you're a pretty much a historian of the global 60s. Mm. How does that play into the story of the rise of gay liberation? I guess that's the original term in the 70s, isn't it? That, 
is that the historically accurate term? Where struggles around sexuality emerge in the 70s, they frame themselves mm. as gay liberation. We don't use that language now. But was that the analysis? Certainly it wasn't amongst the radical sections. There was people who referred to themselves as like camp, like camp people. In fact, in Australia, mm-hmm. that logo, that word was reclaimed and then turned into an acronym for campaign against moral persecution, which I think is kind of cool. That's very uh, cool. But certainly yeah, the gay that. liberation, like that, there was a gay liberation movement and gay liberation front and various organizations around around that. There's been some actually, uh, the Australian Women's History Network has been publishing a whole bunch of really interesting blog posts recently on the questions, on these kind of historical questions around the relationship between, say, liberation as an idea and marriage and kind of some interesting arguments about how marriage was always present as kind of like, like, you know, as you mentioned, Simon, already, that there were these kind of, um, that, that all the way back in the 19th century, people were holding marriages, you know, yeah, gay, yeah. gay men and, and were holding marriages as kind of like a protest in a way. And you certainly see that in the 1970s as well, that marriage, people were holding these marriages, these kind of, these, these kind of theatrical marriages. But certainly, you know, if you read Dennis Altman, Dennis Altman, a great Australian thinker, um, who wrote uh, Homosexual, um, the, the book Homosexual in 1971, which is provides a bunch of really excellent analysis and kind of, people call it a precursor to queer theory in the 90s. And, you know, the, this, this kind of, he provides this really interesting analysis, which tries to transcend the, the boundaries of, you know, that you're gay or you're not, but, you know, there's actually like a whole plurality of possibility of possible sexualities that capitalism itself oppresses. And he's drawing on Mark Huser and Herbert Mark Huser and a few other thinkers to, to kind of, to postulate that. But certainly to people like Altman and others of that generation, of the 70s generation, they're like quite, they find the whole concept of wanting to be married quite strange <laughs> in a way. They, they are you know, Dennis articulates this quite a lot in his writing. He wrote an article in Miage and we'll link to um, on this very topic. And is there some cross yeah. pollination? Sorry, Simon, you go. No, no, you go. I was just wondering what's the level of cross pollination going on between here, between gay liberation and second wave feminism and their critique of, of the family? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of shared ideas, and I think both of them are sharing ideas of kind of this concept of liberation with actually the the, the black power movement in, in the United States in particular, and the national liberation struggles all around the world. So there's this cross-pollination of ideas about liberation from social constructs, but certainly the critique that the white, that the white women in particular are making of the white left mm. as a result of the second wave, the second wave feminist movements coming up and critiquing the patriarchal attitudes of the of the white left that's certainly being replicated in the gay liberation movement and they're, they're critiquing the marxist left on a whole range of very valid reasons there and they're they're, they're sharing a, a critique of patriarchy and developing these ideas of patriarchy i suppose that are that are that are challenging that are challenging um that that, that, that are that are um that are challenging the kind of binaries that exist in society for me yeah for me this is uh, um is when the historical narrative for me I find difficult to keep track of because I, I, I completely understand that idea of like that the family is recomposed, um, like particularly in the 19th century as part of industrialization, and by the end of the Second World War you have like a Keynesian deal in the global north where you have, and that's built partly around a structure of the family where you have man who goes off to work, has a wage that supports the entire family, woman at home doing reproductive labour, raising children, and that's an essential part of how that structure works. By the early 70s, 
that's then in crisis, right? Like the, the struggles right across the social terrain. So the wildcats in the factories, third world struggles, the struggles of black power, and then women and gay liberation, throw that all into crisis. And then mm. you get these two things that kind of, and I think two things that kind of track out of the 70s. One is something that we normally consider bad, which is neoliberalism. But the other is the continuation of these struggles that, continue to remake society against and with those neoliberal changes. And, like, I don't say that as a criticism because I think all radical politics moves with and against capitalism. It's not just a purely reactive force. And into the 80s and 90s, what we might then call queer struggles or however you want to define the movement, I think fundamentally reshape um, Australian society and society in the north, mm. in in the way yeah. in the in the way that that's why we've got such a large majority now that will mm. probably vote for same sex marriage because mm. considerable battles against homophobia, and also a real victory of human freedom has been won. Like I think it's kind of undoubted now that people are I would say people are freer in two thousand and seventeen than they were under Keynesian capitalism, which we often celebrate mm. as somehow better than neoliberalism when it comes to mm. questions of subjectivity, you know, like so the body, mm. sexuality, the kinds of relationships and the kinds of emotional and affective modalities that people can exist in. We have a much greater range of freedom. Mm. And I just want to quickly add something there, Dave, when you were talking about the the way that... that, that um, the, the capitalism is shifting and neoliberalism comes in and that these movements continue, that women's liberation and gay liberation in particular continue and are very successful in a way. What it, but what it does do is it changes the modality, I think, of some of the politics. So these are originally very collectivist movements that are seeking collective changes and neoliberalism forces a change in the modality and the kind of dialogue that is happening and often that moves away from being a politics of collectivity to being a politics of kind of individual rights claiming. Which is quite yeah. interesting as well. And I, I think that's worth discussing. I think. I, I think that's really spot on, um, John. And I think that there's actually a, a bit of a longer history of that that I'd like to talk about as well. So I, I, as I alluded to this uh, in what I was talking before about the uh, sort of late 1800s, early 1900s, where we see the sort of rise of the terms, the the, the, the terms homosexuality and heterosexuality. Uh, what we saw there it, it might confuse people, but the idea of heterosexuality and homosexuality didn't actually exist really into the late 1800s. And they were mm. first sort of described by um, scientists um, who were sort of trying to um, distinguish between different forms of sexualities um, and eventually, you know, created this sort of binary between the heterosexual and the homosexual. Uh, and in the early 1900s, started to, you know, the state started to use that as a, as a method of control and it was quite easy to label the homosexual as abnormal. What it did is it um, it really put sexuality and uh, started to shape sexuality as being core to your being and sort of being core to your identity, uh, and that your sexuality you were you know you weren't just a person who had sex with blah 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 you were a homosexual or a heterosexual or a bisexual or a pansexual incre you know blah, you know all these different things, and so you know the 1970s the the crisis of the 1970s I would argue um, in part would you um, to the collapse of Keynesian economics um, that sort of created a whole range of ruptures in, ruptures in society um, that 
uh, allowed for an explosion of these sorts of freedoms. And so a lot of second wave feminism, for example, um, is due to also the explosion of, of, of feminism was in part due to uh, the increase of women going to the workplace because they were forced to do so and in turn starting to question some of the social structures that had existed in the 50s and 60s. Uh, and you can see a lot of that similar within gay communities. You see a sort of um, growth in a sort of collapse in the power of the state to do what they were doing because of the economic crisis and in turn mm. um, sort of a backlash from queer communities. When you get to the 80s and you see the rise of neoliberalism, what you see is a state sort of taking back a bit more control and using this sort of individualised identity-based approach to sexuality as a way to start incorporating these movements back into capitalism. Uh, mm. And so... That's, and, and that's how I really see it is that it's, it's say, it's sort of taking instead of you, so you still have your heterosexual and your homosexual, you still have them delineated in that way, but instead of um, sort of uh, institutionalizing homosexuals, there are, there are moves to bring the homosexuals into the capitalist state and into the capitalist family. Yeah, so what we see uh, within the marriage equality campaign is not just a campaign that is about trying to get inclusion into equal rights but one that also starts to work to normalise queer people into the capitalist family. So you see a sort of uh, rejection of um, the ideals of free sex and a lot of um, uh, uh, queer people who start to actively reject that. And that was particularly prominent during the HIV AIDS crisis uh, where uh, queer people were actively calling for the shutting down of um, you know, sex on-premise venues, et cetera, and that, and that sort of provided the, the crisis provided the space for people to be making those arguments um, that, that sounds like an awful term, but, you know, that a crisis like that provided a space, but it sort of is true. Uh, and that you also see an increased focus on children within queer communities and the right for queer people to have children and focusing on, the, on that and the desires for queer people to have children. Um, and, and, and in turn, you see this sort of moulding of queer people into the structures of the nuclear family um, and in ways that can be beneficial to capitalism and can be beneficial in particular to the sort of neoliberal capitalism, which required an even greater growing workforce and a greater inclusion mm. of people into the system, uh, which was not really as po po um, which was not really as much required within Keynesian economics, you know, Keynesian capitalism, where you know the man could provide a wage for the entire family under neoliberalism. That wasn't possible. So getting more people into mm. the system is quite important. I was just going to say because that kind of makes me think about the fact that Australian conservatives are almost alone now, in a sense, in terms of their continuing to hold on to this thing that gays shouldn't be allowed to marry, because David Cameron has long abandoned that position in the in the UK and said, you know, that the, the, the marriage should be granted to, 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 to gay couples as long as they, you know, meet the binary, you know, as long as there's two of them in a monogamous relationship, then that's, a, then that's fine. You can call out a marriage. And I think you also said that um, that Angela Merkel, Simon, has was already mm. saying was saying something has has come along on something similar. So obviously, there's a consciousness among sections of the right, at least, that it's that it's important to broaden out the uh, the possibilities of the family unit to get as many families out there as possible to be reproducing as much labour as possible in the home, right? So what's yep. So that's one thing, but then why is so why is the Australian why Australian conservatives so mm. caught up on what seems like something that's not actually helping capitalism? I think that Australian conservatives aren't necessarily 
are more caught up on this than others. Uh, I mean, maybe they're still sort of stuck in this mode um, a little bit later on. I mean, when, uh, you know, it passed, when David Cameron, when Sanders' marriage passed in the UK and David, David Cameron sort of was very proudly in support of it, you also had a number of conservatives in the UK who uh, sort of voted against that. They had a free vote on that. They always do in the UK. I mean, in the US, you have a rabbit right who, who is still trying to repeal same-sex marriage in that country. Uh, and Angela Merkel only came out this year, and I don't even know if she voted for the bill. She just allowed for a free vote to occur. Um, so what I think maybe is happening, and, and maybe there's some discussion we had about this, is that it's just that the conservatives, the, the, the far-right conservative wing that is still trying to hold on to these sort of tr- traditional gender roles, um, and maybe I think, you know, sort of just don't see the potential of queer families to be able to um, play a productive role in capitalism is still stuck in that mindset, um, which is different to how a lot of conservatives see it and are increasingly seeing it as the potential to sort of have this growth in the family unit. Uh, Maybe it's just that they happen to, at this point of time in history, have more power within the internal party room of the Liberal Party um, and so have forced Mm. this issue to hold out. But if it had been different... And we had a different political system that that was less focused on um, party unity like they have in the UK. I suspect this would have passed a long time ago. I guess the other short answer to that question, John, is that like the contradictions of capital, of capitalism, the capitalist mode of production, express themselves on the right as much as they do on the left. So that mm. contradiction in capital between like the expansion of capital and the way that capital dissolves social bonds and the need simultaneously for social order, so that order can exist have a de- create contradictions amongst the right you know even the label conservative is not what you know originally conservatives kind of opposed the expansion of capitalism and defended some kind of hierarchical traditional society as capitalism emerged mm. they've always had that tension mm. now after we were talking the other day uh, simon you were mentioning the work of melinda cooper um Yes, and so I, I went off, and uh, and I'm, I'm familiar with with Cooper's work. One of the most important um, radical intellectuals in the country, um, based at the University of Sydney, I think, in in political science and, and social sciences. Um, and went off and listened to a, a short interview that that Cooper did, and they were talking about how um, Gary Becker, the economist, in particular, it's really interesting. So he's you know one of the people who theorises human capital, which is basically theorising the question of social reproduction from the perspective of capital and also making the argument that as the state retreats, it should be the family which provides all uh, kind of social support and that this was crucial. But apparently he didn't give a crap about who was actually in that family. You know, the, mm. the, the, the sexualities of people in the family wasn't particularly important as long as it fulfilled that role. Yeah, Melinda Cooper has a really excellent book called Family Values, uh, which is relatively recent. I think it was only released last year, uh, but really worth having a read. And what she investigates, it's, it's, it's entirely US-focused, which when I, when I read it for the first time, I'm like, oh, she must, you know, amazing American sort of theorist, and then I realised she was from Australia. Um, but this book is entirely US-focused, but it looks at what what she calls or what, what you could call the sort of strange marriage almost between neoliberals and neoconservatives in the United States. Uh, and what she argues is that uh, these two groups came together because of a focus on the family and because of a requirement on the family. So you have neoconservatives who 
sort of have this traditional view of the family uh, and wanted to promote this view of the family being the, the sort of the centre of social life and the centre of, of society um, and sort of traditional ideas around that, around the nuclear family. And then you had neoliberals who wanted to dismantle the state and have the state retreat. And in having the state retreat, the, the, the social services that the state used to provide through the, through the welfare system and the safety net had to be provided by someone else, by some other sort of social institution. Um, and it was the family that was the one that they sort of turned to um, as the as sort of taking over those roles again of being, you know, carers and supporters and, you know, providing reproductive, you know, doing reproductive work and all of those sorts of things. Um, and so she argues that they sort of created a sort of uneasy alliance um, where they both gave up a little bit of their beliefs in order to um, sort of to create political power to be able to still turn to, you know, to have a focus on the family. And so you have this strange thing where neoliberals who are very freedom focused um, are joining up with neoconservatives who, you know, want to restrict a whole range of um, uh, social roles and, and restrict sexual practices and gender practices. Um, and then you have, you know, and, and so this weird marriage that comes together, um, but it's all focused on the desire to return social services and to return set the centre of social life back to the family in particular away from the state. Look, this again is, is super fascinating because I think one of the things that, um, and we'll talk about a bit later, that there has been a, a, crit a radical critique of the same-sex marriage campaign that focuses on that it silences the critique of marriage. But the critique of the family isn't really present at all anymore, I find, in radical debates. And I want to kind of preface this by, I certainly don't want to have our conversation, I think there's a danger of our conversation maybe falling into the idea that um, there is something illegitimate or inappropriate about queer people wanting to have long-term relationships and raise children, because uh, that's certainly not the argument that, um, that I want to make. And also that no, and, and also mm. also that I think there's a real question about political economy in this, in the in contemporary Australian society. Like I think the horizon of utopia has retreated from large capital P social questions to the privatized utopia of the home. Right, and there's a whole mm. dynamic behind that about like you know you need to buy that that involves a mortgage. You know, we, there's another conversation, and I think we should have that conversation too about how um, the politics of uh, the, the, the 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 dynamics in, in contentional capitalism around property have transformed the space that people have to carry out various forms of sexual and, and family relations. But it's totally understandable that in that context, people go, well, what kind of space can I get? It's the home. And then those dynamics mm. around the home compel a certain form of relationship. On the other hand, of course, the family is still the most dangerous place for women in Australian society, that yeah. um, it's a dangerous place for children. But I think it's mm. also been transformed by feminism and gay liberation, where mm. even though that um, women still do the vast majority of reproductive labour in the home, there has been a loosening of social roles around the family and a greater space that people have to recreate those relationships. So there's, there's kind of a contradictory dynamic going on there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think actually a lot of um, the relationship with sexuality and sex in capitalism is inherently contradictory because, you know, I, I talked about this uh, sort of a little bit when I was going through that history and that capitalism creates a whole range of um, potentials around it when it comes to sexuality through the very way that uh, the economy and the labour force is structured um, it creates a whole range of potentials. And 
you, you know, and you saw that in early, the early days of capitalism when I was talking about the sort of collective, you know, the growth of queer communities, but you also saw women entering into the workforce um, in very different kinds of ways than they had previously. And those, uh, and that that sort of freedom, potential of freedom has then been contrasted by the needs of capitalism to have a nuclear family and for that nuclear family to be a central part of the system and therefore to force people into that family. And so that sort of contradiction has played out in different ways throughout the history of capitalism uh, and continues to play out today. And I think that what, what you're describing there, Dave, is, is kind of it playing out today in that kind of way. I think the other point is goes back to another thing that you were saying before is that it's clear that since the 1970s and 60s in particular that things have gotten a lot better um, for a lot of people, uh, and we can't deny that. It is my life now as a gay man who is in a relationship with two other men in a polyamorous relationship and has the capacity to do this and to talk publicly about it and has written publicly about it, and I don't face threats of violence every day. I don't face... Um, you know, the, I don't face uh, ostracized. I haven't been ostracized from my family. All of those sorts of things, or kicked out and, of uni, you know, right? I, or kicked out of uni, or anything like that. Mm. That wouldn't have happened forty years ago. And I'm not denying that that doesn't, that doesn't happen to people now, and that you know that people aren't going through that shit stuff. Um, but it is less pronounced now than it was forty, fifty years ago. Mm. Uh, and we have to be able to celebrate those wins and say that things have mm. definitely gotten better. Uh, but at the same time, I would argue we've lost some things along the way. And it's, mm. a, it's a victory of struggle, right? It's not just a gift that was given to people, but Absolutely. you know, but a combined combined of like large scale social actions and people just refusing to live lives they didn't want to live mm. changed that social terrain. Absolutely, and and I think that what you saw as well, you know, you know and, and the, the potential of sort of seizing opportunities as well. So, you know, the, the seizing of the opportunities of the sort of the, the economic crash of the 60s and 70s and the fall of Keynesian uh, uh, capitalism to be able to sort of seize that opportunity to, 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 to demand a whole range of things in second wave feminism and the queer movement, uh, the queer liberation movement. And I think we're seeing uh, similar attempts now in some ways of sort of expanding a whole range of potentials around um sexual identity that is occurring now. So I think that that's really important to acknowledge. Mm. And maybe connecting up to these positive thoughts and that, you know, there have been positive changes. Why don't we talk about, Simon, some of your thoughts about the positivities, the positive outcomes that could come out of this campaign, which about of this non-binding, non-compulsory postal survey, which a lot of people are quite critical of. Right, that it's, it's 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 something people. A lot of people are quite critical of it. And why why are they quite critical of it? So I mean, the critical uh, the criticism has been really interesting to watch because it has evolved over time. Uh, mm. So originally, when this was first proposed, like 2014, 2015, a lot of the criticism was focused on the idea that this was not necessary, that Parliament could simply do this job. And then it was a delaying tactic, that it was people trying mm. to delay change. And so a lot of the criticism was based on sort of administrative issues or uh, sort of logistical issues more than anything else. Um, but as it became more, re you know, sort of as it, as it got closer and closer and it, the potential of it became more real, focus really turned to the idea that this would this campaign would sort of unleash a flood of hate or a, a, I think one person famously called it a barrage of bigotry. Um, and that this mm. bigotry would have a major impact on queer people uh, mm. and that it would sort of create these huge mental health effects. It would create a, a whole, you know, it would lead to, um, you know, a wave of suicides among queer youth. It would be isolated. It would be really awful. Um, I have always, always um, supported the idea of a plebiscite and not just like, you know, 
not been in any of us. I've actually said, well, you know, let's bring it on. Let's do this because mm. I think that, and I've done so for a couple of reasons. Firstly, I think that queer people have been trying to get issues around sexuality and gender um, onto the national agenda for a long time. And I think that a public mm. vote on an issue like this gives us space to have those debates and have those discussions mm. um, and to flesh them out. Um, and to do so on a national scale and to be talking about our issues and to be talking about the, the, the homophobia that still exists in our society and to be doing so mm. with a national focus on it. And I think that that mm. is being – we're seeing that. We're seeing debates both externally from queer communities, you know, sort of queer people talking about their, talking about homophobia and queerphobia as an issue in our society, but also we're seeing debates occurring within queer communities about what we want. And I think that's actually really – those are really important debates to have. The second reason I support a public site is that I think that it flushes out two groups in our society in many ways. It flushes out these sort of those who are still very publicly homophobic and those who mm. still hold those views are sort of coming out. You know, we, you know, obviously we've had those people in the past, um, you know, the sort of Lyle Shelton's of the world and the, the Corey Bernardi's, but it sort of highlights the level of homophobia that still exists in our society and sort of highlights it to the point where we can say, well, this is still real and it's still an issue that we can tackle and that we need to tackle. Uh, but more importantly, I think it also has flushed out a whole range of support to, for queer communities. And so you're seeing people who aren't the usual suspects, I guess. Uh, we're seeing big sporting leagues. We've seen uh, big working class unions and their members. We've seen a whole range of faith groups. Um, we've seen uh, people in rural towns across across the country and a range of rural towns. Uh, we've seen a whole range of different people come out and, and publicly support the yes campaign and to do so, uh, you know, in a really positive and proactive way. And I think if we want to talk about vulnerable queer kids um, or queer people, having those support networks, people that may not have realised that, you know, were down their street and who were supportive of them or could be the person they could talk to, um, I actually think is really, really important and really powerful. And it shows... I think, you know, if we want to talk about mental health of queer people um, and the positivity that come from this, a big yes vote, you know, a 65 to 70% yes vote is probably the best boost a queer community could get. And it's the kind of thing that create a whole range of momentum on other issues and, and a whole range of momentum on just talking about homophobia and queerphobia in our society and talking about uh, how it still exists, but also how we can tackle it in a positive and proactive way uh, that could make lives better for everybody. This sort of campaign has the potential to do that if we take the opportunity and we take the opportunity beyond the vote. And look, just kind of smash the reactionary right. Absolutely, uh, th th yeah. This is going to be like, I can't, like, I'm quite confident this is going to be a humiliating defeat for them. Like, in, mm. in, in a kind of like a bullshit um, empirical evidence I see every day kind of way, the 4074 mm. Community and Beyond Facebook group is like 99% and beyond supportive of the yes vote. You know, it has a no, it's like a Facebook group where people normally just sell shit, but no politics rules. When the votes come up, the vast majority of people are going to vote yes. And if someone says no, they're just booed constantly. <laughs> I don't think I've seen in public an actual like physical no statement beyond a couple of wacky Christians who were outside, uh, who were standing on the side of the rally in Brisbane, which had like 10,000 people. But I have mm. seen, including in places like Bundamba and Ipswich, like people who've just got, um, you know, 
queer pride flags on their fence. Mm. Now, that, that's not to say that the homophobia doesn't exist, but, you know, if you just looked around. And I think there's been a kind of disproportionate focus on, like, reactionary statements. You know, like, one Nazi puts up a poster and it's suddenly mm. in all the newspapers and shared by everyone. Um, but, you know, someone puts a, a flag over their fence and that's not reported. But I'm particularly interested because this is what you've written about. Um, you've drawn on the work of Wendy Brown to talk about why the Yes campaign is so pessimistic and why. And so I'd like you to talk a bit about that. But also, where did this idea that political activity was bad for your mental health come from too? Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's because the big questions. But, but, they're, they're, the, questions but they're the things they're encountering, right? Like, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Despite, despite the fact it looks like it's going to be a really clear win, the campaign, the negative, the campaign from the yes has been this shouldn't be happening. It would be much better if politicians just dealt with this and politics didn't impact people's lives, and also that the kind of debate that's going on about this is somehow bad for people's mental health. And the, the classic example was that article in the um, that column in the City Morning Herald, where you had a, a, a I think oh, that yeah it was a, a the the writer was a queer maybe architecture academic who mm. describes a situation where they're sitting in a cafe they hear two young men starting to talk about the um, same sex non binding postal vote expects them to say something reactionary but they actually say how they're both going to vote yes, and of course they're going to vote yes, but still <coughs> still decides that hearing them talk about how they're going to vote yes is somehow a traumatic event and that the, the, the imposition of politics about their lives is intolerable and that it would be better if it didn't exist. Yeah. So to go back to the original question, so Wendy Brown... Um, has uh, she calls what she calls this? Uh, she has a book called States of Injury, and so she talks about a state of injury that has sort of been developed, I guess, within minority communities, and so not just queer communities, but uh, sort of focusing on identity politics and you know and campaigns or movements based on identity. Uh, and she sort of what she argues is that with the collapse of class base and the um, so what she argues is that with the collapse of class-based um, social movements um, around the 1980s and, and, and the shift to more identity-based politics, uh, we saw sort of a different perspective on the um, question of power in our society. And this is a sort of very Foucauldian type of um, argument around power, which sees power less centralised, uh, less less of being, being focused on an analysis of power that's less focused on the state and on capital um, and is instead more focused in the sort of social sphere and sort of seeing power as all around us and that in this sense that uh, homophobia, and this goes back to some of the stuff we were talking about before, is sort of seeing homophobia as being the thing that's out there with these bad people who do bad things and that is kind of who they are and rather than seeing it as a systemic issue that's one that's based in capital and in the state. And what she says that, this sort of creates is a what she argues is a causes a state of injury. This sort of idea that sort of becomes ingrained that uh, in, within queer people in this example um, that we have been injured by the social sphere that we have been um, that we have uh, that we've been injured by the social sphere that that has occurred through um, the sort of community or through the social um, social spaces and that we need someone to protect us from that. 
um, and that the protector or uh, the person who can protect us is the state. Uh, so, the, and so the, the state, state stops is, being a target of critique and is transformed into mm. the saviour. Exactly, exactly, exactly that. So the state um, becomes the saviour of queer people and the protector. And we see this, you know, a lot in a lot of a lot of debates. So, you know, you see this um, a lot in the marriage equality debate, but, you know, the recent safe schools debate has a lot about, you know, the, the, about state programs being there to save queer kids. Um, protections against hate speech is a really good example of this as well, about the state intervening to say that these people can't say these nasty things. Uh, in the US, you have a lot of stuff around hate crime legislation. You don't have that as much in Australia, but it, you, it does it does appear here and there. And I suspect it will be an issue that will appear later down the track, which is again about the state intervening to say that you know crimes based on hate deserve you know greater punishment. Um, but a lot of part of this that Wendy, what Brandy, what Brandy, Brandy, oh, sorry, what Brandy, what Wendy Brown argues is that it creates a sense of powerlessness within queer communities or within minority communities. Um, and that everything, when you sort of have this dichotomy where you're sort of weak and powerless and the state is the protector, it sort of becomes ingrained within your psyche. And there's a lot of stuff that's been done around this, in particular within queer communities around the idea of shame and that the idea of shame or being shamed of ourselves has become sort of ingrained with our very psyche um, and that that sort of then impacts how we do political work and that it impacts um, how we go about this. And, and so that's how you sort of get to the point of the plebiscite where the very existence of the vote ends up being a very a negative thing, um, in particular that it's not just about the existence of the vote in Parliament because, you know, we've since 2004 have been demanding the Parliament deal with this and we've been quite comfortable with this, but it's the shift from Parliament to the general population that is the one that uh, is seen as dangerous because it's the general population who will cause the harms. And, and you saw this... Um, You've seen this in a, in, a, in a range of different ways. So when Malcolm Turnbull first introduced um, legislation to um, to uh, to implement a plebiscite, he said that he believed that Australians could have a respectful debate on this issue. And he's sort of been pilloried for that ever since. Uh, you know, every time someone says something mean, it's like, well, thanks, Malcolm Turnbull, for your respectful debate. Um, because, you know, there's a sort of the belief that, that the general community can't deal with this issue mm. Um, because it's the general community who are the ones that are causing all of these all of these harms, um, even though the polling generally shows that the general community is the one that, ha you know, that has has much greater support for same sex marriage than the you know than our politicians and have done so for quite a while. Just connecting to this this whole thing about the state and the need for the state, this is the contradiction in kind of universalist rights language. Is that on the one hand you all you already have rights that everyone's already got rights. This is the concept that if you, you've got the human rights, so like gay people already have rights. You know, everybody yeah. has rights that are ingrained in their person in a very religious kind of way, interestingly. But that it's the, but if you look at the actual legislation, if you look at the way that the human rights regime is established, it's on the basis of the state granting those rights. Mm. That, you know, despite yeah. the universal pretensions, it is still the state that gives, the, that gives and apportions those rights. And we're quite comfortable with the state making those decisions, and we're quite comfortable in engaging in political campaigns that says the state should do these, you know, should make these decisions in different kinds of ways. And when we make those demands, it's seen as totally uh, reasonable. But the moment we ask a community to provide that, those rights, it's seen as a major threat, and it's seen as something that is dangerous and disastrous, and is about the majority, you know, choosing the rights of the minority, etc. There's a lot of sort of moral panic almost mm. about what the what the, what the mm. um, community will do there. 
and um, f- which is a really strange contradiction. And a fundamentally anti-democratic position in the sense that it distrusts, it thinks people are reactionary and can't be convinced. Like, uh, like I, was, I was wondering, you know, the other day, like I think it's somewhere in like the left imagination in Australia since Howard, there's this idea that there's this unholy alliance between conservative politicians and like, suburban bogans who are like a, who, who are like who are like a bad working class and they're a bad working class because they're um, affluent and um, des- and aspirational and this is what's wrong with Australian society and we've somehow just got to educate people that they're bad and this will be changed but what I think mm. the plebiscite's actually revealing is that this hostile suburban mm. mass doesn't actually fucking exist yeah. or doesn't exist in these ways that people are at, people in the suburbs are to begin with a sizable amount of them queer but mm-hmm. yeah. but also don't fit this idea of this reactionary mass and this is actually an existential crisis for a section of the Australian left because that's how they explained their lack of power and their lack of ability to convince people in Australian society and I would argue it's why we're now seeing sort of this weird pessimism about the vote, and I see this infiltrating a lot of queer debate. It's almost because people, you know, I, I, I wrote a blog post recently asking, do, do we actually do, do do some queer people actually want to lose the vote? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because this idea of this internalized shame that is based on everybody out there hating us. Um, is, has become so predominant within the queer psyche that then also as a political movement, there's sort of a, a belief, what, exactly what you're saying, that there's a sort of unholy alliance that is holding us back and that is why we're weak um, and that is why we don't have power, you know, that that, that, is, that that exists. And so a big win has the potential to challenge some of those ideas and that's even if you say publicly that you support same-sex, you know, that, that, that you want you want a yes vote, and obviously everybody who I'm talking about would in this community, it, it, it can create that sort of internalised idea that, you know, it sort of challenges your very self in many ways and challenges a whole range of your politics in a way that is quite difficult. What about this mental health oh. argument? Because, like, this is one that I feel... Um, uncomfortable about dismissing because mm. it might be dismissed. You know, I think when we were talking on Saturday, you were saying, like, you'd, you know, we can't just dismiss people's real pain. But we now have this narrative that this is a moment of causing mental health to queer people and particularly young queer people by exposing them to this debate. Where did that argument come from and what do you think of it? Um, I, yeah, it's really interesting. I think, I'm not exactly sure where it came from. I think that there's been like an increasing focus on mental health issues in Australian politics for a number of years in general. And then this is sort of started to infiltrate a lot of queer thinking. Uh, and I think that part of that is about the breakdown of community, of, of, of social structures that have sort of individualized social problems to mental health problems. So, uh, if you're, you know, super anxious, uh, for example, it's not that, uh, you know, that our society is fucked, it's that you have a mental health problem that is causing that. Uh, and that is something that we're seeing increasingly and sort of focus on mental health within left-wing communities is sort of based on dealing with all of these issues in a way that we can understand within a neoliberal society. Uh, going to the sort of queer stuff, I guess, I would also argue that there's been 
it's really, you know, it is really challenging because I don't, you know, I'm really cautious not to deny the impact that this is having on some queer people. And it's undeniable. And I know that lots of people, that there are lots of people that I know who are, who are struggling at this point in time. And that's really, really important to acknowledge. And we've got to do our best to support those people. I think within queer communities, a lot of the um, sort of focus on mental health has come from the breakdown of queer spaces and the breakdown of queer community, which is something that's sort of happened through a mixture of different reasons. You have, um, particularly following the HIV AIDS crisis, uh, Sarah Shulman, who's a great sort of queer writer, wrote this amazing book called The Gentrification of the Mind, which is about how um, during the AIDS crisis, you saw this gentrification of queer spaces, um, particularly she focuses in New York, where developers literally came in and bought up the spaces of, of people who, who died from the crisis and developed them. Um, and that this also created a sort of what she calls a gentrification of the mind. So you see a gentrification of queer spaces and then also gentrification of the mind that sort of follows that. Um, but, so you see the sort of breakdown physically of queer spaces, but then you also see in marriage campaigns, and this sort of, these, these two things are linked, um, you see the sort of breakdown of the idea of the, the values of the queer community or the queer space um, and sort of a focus on the, the desire of queers to sort of have their, to, to, to be focused in the home and to not be focused in the queer community. And Dave, that goes back to a bunch of the stuff you were saying about the role of property and the role of the, how, the home in current society and how that's still very important. If you want to be in, you know, the big, you know, the, the sort of, you know, around Oxford Street, you have to be a very, very wealthy person to be able to do that um, nowadays. Um, so the sort of the capacity for, for regular queers to be able to do that um, and to be in those communal spaces that, that are still dominant is very difficult. Now, obviously, there are queer spaces in Western Sydney and Southern Sydney and Northern Sydney. Um, but it's just that uh, they're harder to access, I guess, because of the dispersion of queer people. Um, you know, when, you know, queer people used to come to these sorts of spaces collectively, uh, you know, because... I guess because of a system, you know, because they were ostracised, so they came to where the community was. And so part of this is also uh, what's hap what happens when you have a more accepting society that you feel more comfortable living in Western Sydney or, uh, you know, Southern Canberra or, you know, Eastern Brisbane or, or wherever. You feel more comfortable living in, in any part of the country or rural towns. Um, and so that disperses the community as well that used to be much more centralised. Um, going back to the mental health issues, I think that what's happened is that in, in part, um, the social support that used to be provided by the queer community is being lost um, because mm. people are, are less in queer communities. So when there are homophobic attacks, there are fewer queers around you to be able to sort of deal with that collectively. Um, and so instead we're starting to talk about mental health as an issue. And so we're sort of individualising that in the, in, the, um, uh, in the minds of queer people and we're saying that uh, that the issue here is mental health, and that this, you know, that we have to do our best in terms to to deal with those mental health issues, and that we have to do things to stop those mental health issues from occurring because the queer community can no longer provide the support services that we that mm. we used to when when these when um, queer communities were more centralised in this kind of way. I, and, I, wa I wonder how much like yeah. the the disappearance of time impacts this as well. That people are so like the. Uh, more of us are work, work and more of us work longer hours and how much that kind of radical mo period of the queer movement actually relied in somewhat on higher rates of unemployment and mm. you know, and therefore you had the time to do this kind of community building activity 
But when that disappears, who fills that? The state or NGOs, right? These professional mm. organisations take up those roles. Absolutely. And I mean, if you, if you look at um, one of the you know, classic queer movie, Paris is Burning, which is about the New York Bulls scene, um, this amazing community in New York, and, and a community that still exists and it actually has, I've been doing some reading, has started to regrow, in, particularly in Brooklyn at this point of time. Um, but that, a lot of, you know, all of those people, all those people were unemployed. Most of those people were unemployed. They had a lot of time. They formed communities. And that through forming communities, they were able to survive both emotionally and you know materially through you know and they were able to to, to you know to eat because they were able to do those things collectively a bit more yeah so uh, this, this always uh, <laughs> goes to, to like my mind like the importance of you know other questions about like decommodifying housing or reducing the work mm. week or though you know i'm not 100 percent for it a universal basic income is creating the space for relationships and and sexuality all right we, we've covered a, a lot of stuff um here one thing I, I did want let, want you to talk about a little bit was the narrative in Australia around the Irish plebiscite around gay marriage, mm-hmm. because it seems to be that for me that looked like a massive victory, but in the, the the yes campaign here, it's increasingly being presented as a tragedy. What's that about? Oh, that's just about using that for a political goal, um, really. In in my view, so I think that the yes campaign. Um, saw, made the decision to oppose a plebiscite. Uh, they saw Ireland as a big victory, as I see it as a big victory, uh, and they in turn, I guess, presented a threat to the opposition to the plebiscite, and they sought ways to turn it into a tragedy. Um, I think that the Irish campaign was a huge victory. You had one of the most mm. socially conservative Western countries in the world um, have a 65% yes vote, something along those lines, um, a huge victory, and not only that, but it has actually created a whole range of momentum. So there's been really good research that has come out that has said that young gay people in Ireland, since the vote, feel significantly more comfortable coming out, and there has actually been a wave of young queer people coming out. Um, in you know, I guess if you see that your community, which you thought was super homophobic, is actually then just voted 60% yes, or you know your local town voted 70% yes, you might suddenly feel more comfortable coming out because you know that there are people who are supporting you. But you've also seen political momentum. So just last week, there was an announcement that um, Ireland's going to have a referendum on abortion rights and on mm. decriminalising abortion. They have to have a referendum because it's in their constitution. Um, but that's a huge social victory, a potential for a huge social victory that probably wouldn't have happened without the, the same-sex marriage referendum. Um, it's interesting to note that the there was particular research that was done by the Yes campaign that argued that, um, that, the, that the campaign had a traumatising effect on Irish people. Uh, from what I understand from that uh, research is that it focused largely, the questions focused on the negative impacts of the campaign so that it didn't do any counteracting. It didn't say, well... So they asked about the no campaign and the impact that had, but then it didn't say, well, what about the yes campaign and did that have a positive Mm. impact on your feelings and how do you balance these things out? Um, So obviously when you're asked about the negatives of a campaign, you're going to say this was a negative experience, but then when you then say, well, Mm. what about the positives, you know, does that counteract and, uh, you know, does that counterweigh those things? And I think on the evidence of what we've seen from Ireland, it did and it's created some really positive stuff. And it must be like a body blow to the power that the church, or at least reactioning sections of the church, has in Irish society. Yeah, hugely. You know, the, you know, one of the most Catholic, Catholic societies in the Western world, 
um, that is now seeing you know major challenges to quite a number of their social their social you know positions. Oh. Mm. All right, we should we should probably finish up. Um, you still haven't told us why you were bolted, and that's oh, yeah, really, that's really crucial. Um, but also, I, I guess, and John, I'll say some, put some questions in, and John, you throw something in some more. I'd like you to kind of look mm. into into a crystal ball and mm. say, what do you think is going to happen? Like, what do you think? How do you think the vote's going to go? And then, what the flow on effects of that will be? John, do you have anything to say? No, no, no. I'm I'm quite happy for you to finish up there, actually. Okay, cool. So uh, let's start with being bolted. Um, <laughs> I've actually been bolted four times. So for those who don't know, that means uh, having an article uh, written about me by Andrew Bolt, uh, who is um, a leading uh, Australian conservative um, writer. Or, 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 I was going to say journalist, but he's definitely not a journalist. Uh, commentator. Commentator is the best better term. He has this awful blog that sort of produces crap every day. Um, he, I was first bolted way back in 2012 when I wrote an article criticising the same-sex marriage campaign in Australia and criticising the way that it, um, I argued that it excluded a whole range of queers from the debate and the discussion. Uh, and what happened was that uh, the Australian, I was part of the Greens at the time, I was a convener of the ACT Greens actually, um, and like two months after I wrote this article, I was in Europe, I was in Sweden, and I got a call from someone in the party saying the Australian's going to be writing an article about you tomorrow, um, <laughs> about this article. Um, we thought it was a disaster. It was like a page eight short thing that happened, but it created a little flurry within conservative circles. Um, so basically they were saying, look, the, the Greens, are, you know, they're using me to, there was, you know, I was clearly symbolic of the Greens. Uh, and they were saying that the Greens, uh, you know, they say that, you know, marriage won't lead to a slippery slope, but here is someone in the Greens who says it should lead to a slippery slope. And so this under, you know, this reveals their true agenda that they want, you know, that, that they want polyamorous, you know, well, they would use polygamous marriage next and then, and then we'll be marrying dogs and then we'll be marrying cats and blah, 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 blah. Uh, and so Andrew Bolt has written, has used me four times now, I think, to make that argument. Um, you know, he pulls me out every now and then. And so just a couple of weeks ago, he found an article that I wrote two years ago um, uh, and that he's never touched on until now um, to make that same attack um, again and to sort of try and link it to the Greens. He like, you know, he, he likes to hate the Greens. And so um, so that's that's how I've been involved. And it's not just been Andrew Bolt. Um, I've had a media release by the Australian Christian um, lobby sent out against me. Um, I've been on Vex News and uh, I also had um, Corey Bernardi um, uh, talk about this in Parliament. Uh, and so I'm in, in Parliament Hansard as the... <laughs> Sort of awful, awful um, polygamist loving person who, who and, and all of these things are, are, are all of this is front and center in your CV now. Yeah, it will certainly, oh, absolutely. Like, it'll certainly, make, yeah, yeah. certainly make things easier for future biographers. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, I, there's you know I, I quite enjoy it uh, seeing it every time. Uh, I love it, and it's you know it's a nice little claim to fame. So every time he, he comes out with an article, it's like oh, Bolt's you know Bolt's found something again that I've said so. Uh, to be fair, there was one time when I when I wrote a direct response to an article that he wrote, and then he also wrote a response to me, and that was quite fun as well. Um, but let's yeah, so that's let's go to the last question, I guess, maybe about what's what I think is going to happen. I am. I was like last week, I was maybe quietly optimistic, but now with the polling that's coming out and the data that's come from the ABS, I am increasingly optimistic that we will have a very strong yes vote. 
Um, so I think I would put it between the 65 to 75 range. I think on Saturday Huge. I said just 65 to 65 to 70, but I'm going to boost up to 75. I still think there's a tiny chance that I'm going to be absolutely devastated, but I think that we're going to be looking at you know at that range of yes of a yes vote. Hmm. I think there's two potentials that could come from this, and so it really depends on queer people and queer movements uh, to to see um, to to decide on how we take this. The first, I guess, more negative potential um, is that if we get that, we'll have marriage equality. So, sorry, either way, marriage equality will pass very quickly after that. I just don't think that the right, with a vote of that of, of that size, the right will be so embarrassed. Um, you know, Tony Abbott will become an increasingly marginal figure. Um, you know, we had to see the, the smirk wiped off his, his um, face, of his smug face, and that will make me del- deliriously happy. Um, and, you know, and it will give Malcolm Turnbull enough um, power to sort of push it through on this particular issue. Um, and then from there, I think we've got two potentials. The first is that the sort of more negative approach is that we are people um, and uh, the big campaign organisations um, basically just shut up shop um, and say we're done. You know, uh, a lot of camp- um, campaigning has been done through an organisation called Australian Marriage Equality. Um, you know, they will shut up shop because they'll be done. Um, but you'll see potentially the loss of a lot of energy within the queer camp communities. I think some of that's not a bad thing. There are some people I'd be quite happy to see them leave the space and to let other people stand up. Um, but I think the biggest wor- bigger worry I have is that in the media in particular, you'll also see a sort of loss in interest in queer issues and in that uh, they'll say, you know, marriage has been such an issue for, uh, what, 13 years now. Um, it's been sort of sort of spoken about as being the 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 issue, or, you know, the, the, the final hurdle of, the, of gay and lesbian equality. And so when that happens, that they'll just say, well, sort of it's done now. Why are we still talking about homophobia or in queerphobia? The other alternative is that what it does is sort of what it did in Ireland is it creates a whole range of momentum on social issues um, and that that we sort of take a massive victory to sort of push forward on tackling sort of systemic homophobia in our society and to thinking about radical ways that we can deal with that. And I think there will be segments of the community that will do that and I think that they will be mobilised by that. I think we'll be freed from the debate about marriage equality, which has sucked up so much oxygen. Um, and so... The other alternative is that because same-sex marriage is not spoken about as much, that we actually have space to start talking about, you know, tackling systemic homophobia and looking at mm. systems of homophobia and looking at, you know, how these systems work, work and why they exist. And maybe the debate on the plebiscite will actually give us the space to do that because we can see it sort of manifest in a very public way. Um, and so there could be a whole range of momentum that comes from that, and I think that's the more positive and more hopeful I suspect what we'll actually see is a mixture of these two outcomes and that you'll see some people who will shut up shop and go live in their suburban homes and be quite happy doing so. I don't think they're necessarily a loss in some of the in some of those people doing that. And you'll see a more radical element of queer campaigners who will use mm. the momentum to try and push for other things. That's mm. the most likely sort of mixed outcome that we'll get. The slogan should be turn this turn this uh, plebiscite into a slippery slope. Yeah, I think we're going to make I, I wonder also what I'm totally it, up for that. Yeah, I, I wonder also what it'll do for you know not to obsess about the right too much, but I think it will. Like, the thing that's really quite noticeable is that every section of the no campaign is in some way signed up to some form of conspiracy theory. Yeah, you, you know, like like even like the, the mainstream 
not like believe that there's a gay agenda, reproduce ideas of of cultural Marxism right up into the out and out fascists or the photo that we'll probably lead this with the banner that was dropped off the M1 over Logan, um, which thinks that gay marriage is driven by an Illuminati Jewish conspiracy and then has some awesome pictures of crossed penises and kissing vaginas. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Must be seen to be believed. Yeah, look, it's it's absolutely... But but it's like, like, well, you know, like I I think there is this real over-focus on the tiny fascist grouplets and the very small activity they do. So put up posters, egg people's houses that have flags. But I think they'll come out of this hardened as well. Mm. And... I agree um, with you. And we should be kind of, you know, not obsessed with that, but prepared for mm. for that, you know, that there'll be more, like, there'll be both that something weird, I assume, will happen in the Liberal Party with that faction that is just right-wing wacko and those bodies outside the Liberal Party in the broader white, uh, right and white, largely, um, <laughs> mm. like, ecosystem will become unstable and dangerous. I don't think, you know, we call for the state in that, but it's just something to keep on our radar. Yeah, and I think you might have two passes. I think, you know, the likes of Corey Bernardi and Tony Abbott, so sort of mainstream conservatives, parliamentary conservatives, uh, would probably be embarrassed by this. And I I kind of really hope that what this ends up doing is marginalising Tony Abbott, not just in terms inside the Liberal Party, but just in in our bloody media who like Mm. to report on everything he says. Um, I'm hoping that this sort of, gets, you know, stops them from having, you know, it stops their sort of Tony Abbott boner, you know, that obsessed mm. oh, with image. he does because he just he <laughs> looks really, he, yeah, he looks, you know, because it will make him look totally marginalised and totally just, mm. you know, disconnected from the realities of, community, of the community. And it will also give them a little power to marginalise him within the Liberal Party. But then you'll have this sort of very, you know, hard right who who, who sort of who are stuck in this sort of conspiracy theory, and then we'll see that a victory for the plebiscite is part of this conspiracy theory, and so it'll harden their position on this, and you'll see that that will might play out a little bit more, and we have to be wary of that because that could have an impact. Um, it'll be isolated, but it mm. could have it could have some mm. isolated impacts. I wonder as well, like. Um one of the future challenges will actually be for someone of my political persuasion um, making critiques of electoralism. Mm. Where, you know, like, I think that what's quite interesting is that you know, I think there's some kind of um, radical critique of the same-sex marriage debate, but that hasn't often been framed as in the critique of voting, which, you know, is, is something that I'm relatively sympathetic to. But in this situation, you know, I'm I'm not, I'm not flying that flag at all. You know, I think people should vote. I voted. I would encourage the participation. I want them to vote yes. But I wonder what if there's going to be a long term effect of of you know the Australian state will be able to dress itself in a kind of, you know, even though the political class have been so fucked on this issue for so long, after the yes oh. vote, they'll dress themselves in a gown of progressivism, you know, as yeah, well. Yeah. And that, that they managed to achieve this and they managed to do it and look how they did it through a democratic process and that was that made it so much, you know, so much more enduring almost. Um, and I think that there's a potential here, I guess, to make the argument from people from our political persuasions that say, look, our electoral systems are fucked, um, but that we can use them for positive goals when, when it's strategically right to do so. And I think this is a case where it's strategically right to do so. I think that the... You know, the, the threat is always that, you know, that those sorts of arguments get narrowed down to 
oh, look how good voting is. Um, so we should just, you know, we should abandon critiques of electoral, electoralism because, you know, one time voting had a positive impact. So therefore that means voting is great and we can't have any nuance in that argument. And we have to be thinking about nuanced arguments around how, you know, electoral systems are fucked, but, you know, sometimes mm. we can use them to our advantage. We can use them to strategic advantage when it's, when it's, when it's possible. Mm. Uh, John, any final things you wanted to talk about? No, no, I think we've, we've gone, we've taken more than enough of Simon's the, late the, evening. Uh, the, the final thing that I wanted to say is that we should comment about how great the rallies have been. Yes. You yes. know, the rallies in Australia are often pretty shit, particularly after the end of the failure of the anti-war movement in 2003, mm-hmm. 2004. Mm. The noticeable exception to this is the yes rallies, which are lively mm. and powerful and feel empowering and mobilise a larger group of people than the sliver of the miserable left. That's right. And they, they kind of are the main argument against that case that, that the politics is going to, like, ferment mental illness is, you know, go to these rallies and you'll feel empowered and you'll yeah, feel absolutely. part of something bigger than yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And I know lots of people who have felt that um, going to these rallies and seeing, you know, that sense of community and that sense of, People coming together um, to in a in a powered, strong kind of way has been really great. And also, the just the like you know, like in Brisbane, it was ten thousand people, and then like a few wingnut Christians with crazy signs. You know, mm-hmm. and it was it was like in in our conversations, getting ready for this, we've been like um, showing this hilarious election campaign ad from nineteen eighty nine, which we'll link to, which is you know a campaign so for- beautiful. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, so it's 9.99. It's an election campaign after Joe has been brought down by corruption claims. The Nationals are trying to keep power in Queensland. And not only are they trying to say that if Labor wins, they'll institute socialism, but one of the things that they talk about is that Labor will decriminalise homosexuality, which they pronounce in a really kind of funny way. And just how... Homosexual. <laughs> yeah, that's how, that's how bigots used to say homosexual, wasn't it? Um, but, and, but, you know, like... I'm opposed to a kind of like lazy southern chauvinism when it comes to Queensland, but that was a major argument we made in Queensland. Then 2017, 10,000 people mm. in the streats, almost no opposition, right? That ma- yeah, that matters. It does matter, and it, and it shows the progress that we've made. Any final mm. thoughts, Simon? No, I think we've done a lot. So just a reminder, yeah. if people are like, well, that was brilliant, I want to find more of Simon's work, where do they look? Okay, so you can find me on Twitter at Simon Copland. Uh, you can find me on Facebook at Simon Copland Writer. You can listen to my podcast, which is Queers, and or we're on Facebook at Queers Podcast. Uh, and you can check out my blog, which is simoncopland.com. Brilliant. Well, um, thank you very much, everyone, for listening to mm. Living the Dream. Thanks for joining us, Simon. Um, maybe Thank you we'll, for having me. Uh, maybe we'll drop you no, a line no on November 16 or 17, um, depending how long the Victory Party goes for. Um, and get your thoughts about the result. How does that sound? Yeah, that'd, that'd be really great. All right, excellent. Okay, right. thank you so much, Thanks Simon. A Have a good one. Bye. Thank listeners. you both.
Stay for 